0: I realized later in my career with the Packers, like, I better be less of a hard-ass here. So people think as you advance in your career, you become a harder negotiator. I became an easier negotiator because what I learned was you got to leave stuff on the table. You got to make people feel good about their contract. You got to make people feel good about working with you. Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. We are presented, as always by DraftKings, we're produced by Brian Neal, the musical producer, Sam Brandt, you hear his music under us, of course that's my son. We are going to do something different and something special today. I have been asked over the years, can we just have a podcast with some life advice, with some stories, with some really commentary from you about being an agent, about working for a team. And someone asked, I think his name is Evan, asked about, can you give some thoughts on what you're doing now, would you ever go back to a team, what you really get out of your life now, those kind of things. And I thought, okay, I should do that. Because we're in a slow time of year. um, In, of course, my go-to sport, football is kind of wound down for the offseason. So I think what we decided to do, or what I, I decided to do, was have someone and some people interview me. And who better to interview me than two of my students. So STAR students are with me today and they're going to interview me about topics sort of off, off the plate from what's going on now in the NFL, what's going now in the business of sports. And I think these are episodes that are special, that we can replay from time to time that sort of give people insights, not only into me, but in life advice and who better to do that with than two of the people I'm trying to mentor in different stages of their learning career. So I want to introduce you guys to, first of all, my superstar, Austin Mayo. Austin has been with me now three years. He has graduated law school as of about six days ago, and he is off to study for the bar. So I don't bother him too much anymore, but I'm bothering him for this. Austin's been a great, great asset to me. And on the other side, Janie Pearson is coming into that role. the first time she just finished her first year of law school she's got a background in sports marketing and I want to get her involved with my stuff too which she's starting to do so I want to welcome Austin and Janie and then they're going to welcome you guys to ask me questions so Austin Janie welcome to the my podcast and now it's your podcast
1: yeah, it's just, uh, it's it's great to to be here as a, as a longtime listener, certainly since I've been in school. It's fun to, I guess, be side by side now, Professor. So thanks for uh, having Janie and I. Um, I wanted to start off just, you know, in, with being in all your classes and stuff before we get to, I guess, more of like your professional career. I, I wanted to start off with um, talking about your childhood, growing up in the DMV area. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what was that experience like and what was your first exposure to sports? Where was that like first moment that you were like, I want to be involved with this in any capacity possible?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. DMV, for those unfamiliar with it, <laughs> DC, Maryland, Virginia. I grew up in Maryland, Chevy Chase, Maryland, right outside the city. But when we are in high school, we actually moved to the city. Uh, my father is a contractor, general contractor builder. He built a house in Northwest DC. So we moved down there and from a sports point of view, for the, from the participation side, I was into tennis. I was playing competitive tennis and I was playing for our school. I also was a little point guard in basketball, third string point guard on the basketball team. Uh, but I love basketball. I would go out to the playground and some of my formative moments, because look at me, I'm pretty, as pretty as short as they come and I'd be going out there with some really serious players and I was always the last one picked. Uh, I rem- just remember forever, I'll always remember this, uh, bunch of guys, I was the only white guy, white kid and I was the shortest and I was the smallest. So they kind of looked at me like, oh God, we got to take this guy. And they give me the ball, no one covers me of course. Anyway, I go inside, I make a move, the best move I've ever made and I laid it in over three guys. And the, the whole basketball game just stopped. <laughs> and they like, they're like like, oh, my God. And they said, all right, Shorty. Shorty can ride. Shorty can ride. That, and I'll just remember, Shorty can ride the rest of my life. That Someone said that about me. Shorty can ride. I think the other thing, Austin, is that the Redskins, and I know it's not politically correct to call them that, but that was my team. That was the galvanizing force. My dad and I... And my brother used to go to those games like I I was probably a toddler, maybe three, four years old. We'd go to Redskins games at RFK Stadium, which is, of course, no longer housing the the Commanders games. Um, And it was just a great experience, you know, having those tickets and going season tickets. We had partial season tickets to the Washington Bullets. Now they're called the Wizards. But the Redskins was really, you know, they were good. They were good the whole time I was growing up. And that was just a great experience so growing up in dc was great i have to say this because a lot of people ask i never really experienced the political government side and as i said my family was in uh contracting and building homes and just you know everyone asked well dc you must be a son of a congressman no no it was just where we lived now at my school there were sons of congressmen and I got to know the Shriver kids. Uh, Eunice Shriver founded Special Olympics. They have some connection with the Kennedys. I got to know uh, Mark Hatfield was in my uh, class. His dad was senator from Oregon. So you knew some of that. My sister went to school with Susan Ford, the president's daughter. Um, So you knew some of that. And I guess my claim to fame, speaking of my sister's school, I grew up with Julia Louis Dreyfus, the wonderful Elaine on Seinfeld. She was like that as a kid. I mean, she was just a dramatic, fun, and fun to be around. And my claim to fame, as I said, we I actually dated her once, although it was a double date, and she was with the other guy. But I guess I could say I dated her. I'll leave it at that.
2: All right. I think I'm up next. Again, thanks so much for having both Austin and me on board today. We're both really excited. Um, I guess I just want to sort of stay with the young Andrew Brant, and talk about your transition into higher education. Why, when did you know you wanted to go to law school? What were you pursuing in going to law school? What was that experience like?
0: Yeah, it was interesting because um, I went to Stanford. It was, I could never get into Stanford today, but it was one of those where, okay, they took a chance on this kid from Washington, DC. And I got in somehow, some way I got into Stanford. So I went across country sight unseen I tried to play a little tennis there. I tried to play a little tennis after there, but I knew tennis was not gonna be my career. Um, I just sort of was really kind of feeling like, and maybe a lot of law students are like this, that tell me this, there's no harm. (laughs) My parents were all for it. They were willing to financially support me. And I'll just go to law school while I figure out what's next. And I actually thought about staying out on the West Coast And, you know, you think about these times in your life, which are forks in the road. Had I gotten into Stanford Law School, I probably never would have ended up back East, you know, would never would have come home. I didn't, (laughs) you know, getting into Stanford undergrad was great enough, but couldn't get into law school. So I got into Georgetown back home in DC. It all made sense. Just come home, live in DC. My best friend from high school also got in. We got a place on Capitol Hill after I realized Georgetown Law was not in Georgetown. (laughs) And, uh, and we made it work from there. But Janie, I never went thinking, okay, I'm going to be a lawyer. Now in the back of my mind, I'm like, maybe, maybe there's a way to combine my love of sports with law. And, And also growing up, I was also also that kid from Austin's question. Not so much, even from a young age, I was like, what makes teams successful? Not so much this player's great, this coach is great. It was like, why are the Redskins? Why are other teams year after year successful and other teams aren't? And why are some teams always picking at the top of the draft? So even as a kid, that interested me. So I'm like, okay, maybe I can make this work as a career, but I had no plan. Um and then I've told the story many times, it just got lucky. And I, 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 it is luck. I was in, there's a firm down the street from Georgetown Law called ProServe. They represented athletes, they represented tennis players. And lo and behold, they're the same guys that organized the junior tournaments and the tournament in DC that I ball boyed for every summer. And I knew someone. And I said, just, can I just, can you just guys take me on? I'll just learn. I, don't pay me. Come in when I can. And they're like, okay. <laughs> so I started as a junior uh, tennis intern agent while in law school. And then I got to the point, Janie, where I had to make a real decision, which looking back is a real decision because I, I was offered to stay on a pro serve after law school, but then I was offered real law jobs. And I would say real law jobs like work for a firm, you know, have security, uh, wear a suit to work every day, those kind of things. And I, everyone in my friend group was like, Hey, you know, hang out with athletes versus hang out with lawyers, of course. But even at a young age and talking to my dad and everything, I had to really consider, you know, I'm going to turn my back on real law. I think if I do this, because once you go agent, it's hard to come back to lawyer. And I tell people this agent sounds great. It's fun. It's sexy. It's exciting. It's Jerry Maguire. It's all that. But if you want to get back to being a quote unquote lawyer, you're putting yourself behind. And, and I realized that. And I did. And I just said, you know what? I had tried the uh, summer associate at a law firm. I know that's not a long sample size, but I was totally, uh, uninterested and I did the law. I did the sports thing. It just, worked out from playing tennis tournaments for the same people that ran the sports firm. So what
1: was the point then where you started getting involved with David Falk? Because I feel like that is kind of like the turning point in your career where that really set you up, not just on the professional sports track, but that's where you were inter- you know, interacting with some of these humongous players and going off of that not just working with david falk but i think everyone in the in their in their professional field whether it's you know an actor in hollywood or, or a football player whatever that might be they all have that moment where they're like oh my god like i'm actually involved they all have that starstruck moment whether it's the kid who idolized tom brady playing tom brady or whatever that is so when you were working with david falk what when was that first moment that you're like oh my god i really am like living out the dream right now
0: well, let me say this before I get to that answer, because everyone asks me that, and I, people have to know this, that want to work in the sports, that wears off fast, right? So the starstruckness and the sexiness and glamour of being around uh, high-profile athletes wears off really fast. But I was a tennis agent, and I looked down the hall, same firm, right, ProServe, and there's this guy, Falk, David Falk, and he has one other guy helping him. But just dozens of NBA players and two signed in recent years named Patrick Ewing and Michael Jordan who were taking up most of his time. And I'm like, hey, that guy needs help. Can I stay in the firm and work for him? I asked the head of the firm and he talks to Dave, He's like, yeah, I need help. So I'm like, that's the best way to move is just go in and, and find your way. So that was one move. And then, you know, Austin, I did meet Michael and I'm like, you know, sort of looking around the room, like I'm really in the room with Michael Jordan, but I will say this, that was Michael pre-Michael. That was Michael as a young, sure he was exciting coming out of Carolina and early career, but he was not Michael Jordan at that point. Patrick was something else because Patrick, I went to Georgetown, although law, he was undergrad at the same time. And I'll never forget, Patrick Ewing, because he had this aura of this hulking, mean presence. And he was, and still is, to my knowledge, just the sweetest guy, sweet as can be, Patrick Ewing. So he's like, We meet in David's office one day. David goes to get a cup of coffee. He's asking me about myself. I'm like, He's asking me? It's like, Where'd you grow up? What are you into? What do you like? How long have you been here? What do you study? And I'm like, okay, Patrick Ewing. Um, So I realized that David needed help. But I think the real inflection point of my career in that, Austin, was then I saw a different path. Because in addition, all these great NBA players, and I had some, you know, I had Muggsy Bogues, and I had Reggie Williams and Reggie Lewis. Unfortunately, he passed. But I saw football. So again, look at me. I'm never going to play football. but. I had a football knowledge and a football interest, and we had football players, and David was paying no attention to them, no attention, because he had Michael Jordan and Patrick. And so I said, okay, here's my path. I can take these four to five football players, keep them happy, and get some more. So in my six years at that firm, we went from six, or sorry, four to six probably 16 to 18 NFL players through me. David helped and having Michael Jordan helped, but that was great. I'm like, okay, I can do this. I can do football. And that was kind of my inflection point there. Not so much handling some basketball players or working on issues for David with Michael or Patrick. It was like, I can be the guy in football. And that's where you. I tell people, look around, look in your situation. Maybe there's a little offshoot. There's a trailhead somewhere that can take you where you want to go. And that for me was football.
2: Just kind of a follow-up on that. i um, curious to hear what the difference or similarities are between representing players across different sports. So starting with tennis um, maybe some names that people don't know as well, moving into your, with Michael Jordan and Patrick Ewing, and then moving to the football side, what are some of the similarities and differences between just your day-to-day life and then also working with those types of people?
0: Yeah, great question. I was, I was burned out on tennis. I've talked about this, burned out on playing. I was never going to be, as I said, a real pro player, but kind of when you work in tennis, you're really recruiting 13 year olds and, um, uh, I just watched recently the King Richard movie with Will Smith about the Williams sisters. It's really true. I mean, you're you're really going down to the academies in Florida and you're probably too late if, if they're there, but you're trying to get them before that. And it's really working with the parents and just kissing up to the parents. Now, kissing up is part of being an agent, but I just saw that as, wow, I can't live like this. Worried about a 13-year-old and I said, at least I want to work with 20-year-olds. You know, at least I can get some kind of transformational effect with an older person. That was part of the tennis thing. The other part is, as is so obvious, tennis is an individual sport, and they're siloed. So, again, I didn't work with superstar tennis players, but I found them very siloed with their coach, with their physio, with their parents, with their agent advisor. And there wasn't a lot of camaraderie, whereas basketball, football, obviously team sports. And what I found was, this makes is is no surprise, but basketball is a team sport, but it's more individual, especially with star players. They have entourages they're into their own thing. Yes, it's a team sport, but it's only five on the court. Football players I have found for the last 30 years to be extremely team oriented and the ones that aren't are kind of ostracized. So the difference as we go from tennis to basketball to football, I really have found football players the lowest of ego in that group because it really is a team. And I talk about the sport all the time. It is extremely interdependent and no lineman is as good as his quarter, uh, without a quarterback, no running back without a line, no receiver without a quarterback, no quarterback without a receiver, et cetera, et cetera. So I just, Have noticed that it's part of the personality and it's really been a a nice thing to learn about football players
1: so you've often talked about kind of your your life in three different chapters and i think it's safe to say that that kind of closes chapter one essentially and moving more towards now your experience directly in football so what was the transition like from working on the agency side to then going off before even the Packers, you had uh, a stint overseas. Can you kind of talk about that transition?
0: Yeah, and then we're gonna get back to a little more on the agent side, because I went, as you know, from agent to team, back to agent, back to team, because my first experience with a team was, I built up that practice I talked about. I had this player on the Vikings, we negotiated a contract, the Vikings general manager was also unbeknownst to me involved with forming a new league overseas we get done with the contract. He looks at me up and down. He says, do you speak Barcelona?"n I said, what does that mean? He said, Spanish. I said, okay, it turned out it wasn't Spanish. But as I talked about that led to me being the first general manager of the Barcelona dragons, something I never anticipated, something I never thought I would do. But there was there was, right? So I'm young, I'm single, I'm not looking to leave representing players, but that is in front of me. And I always think about this. I wrote it in my newsletter last week. Uh, some life advice I got at Stanford was allow for serendipity in your life. Like if I had a linear path, like I'm just going to put my head down, be an agent, see where it goes. I'd never do it. But here I am, like they're offering me a job to run a team at age 28. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and they're uh, Okay. And I didn't want to leave players, but I'm like, I can't turn this down. And then, of course, it was I had to hire a coach. I didn't know who to hire. They told me. I. It was a you know, uh, an atmosphere where I gained knowledge about myself and the business in such a short time. I had to put together a team to go overseas in a matter of weeks. I had to sell American football to S- Spain, which never worked. They cheered at all the wrong times, and they did the wave, the whole game, and all that. But what really showed me was like, dealing with adversity, right? When I read about NFL teams that have to play in London and come back, I'm like, come on, I'm like we played, we played in like, you know, they were putting up goalposts in the corners of the end zone, they ruined our uniforms. I had to, I had to pay, pay customs bribes to get our equipment. We practiced like in a dirt field somewhere. I mean, that was hard. And that was hard in personality. I realize it's so much a part of this we had 55 24 to 28 year olds 30 year olds who had never been out of the country and now they're out of the country for 4 months we had people we had players break down like psychological issues they didn't understand the news they didn't understand the papers they didn't understand the menus they liked you know there were pretty women over there they liked that but that was like that was all they really The only thing that sort of kept them going they were really uh it was really like a life moment to try to keep everything together over there the barcelona dragons lasted one year or the the world league lasted two years the barcelona dragons did not come back in the nfl europe too i went back to the agent business so there i'm like okay i'm done with team side i'm going to do agents some more i got involved i've told this story many times with ricky williams Ricky was this great athlete at Texas playing, what a lot of people don't know is professional baseballs in the summer. So he was with the Philadelphia Phillies minor league system in Batavia, Pennsylvania, I got a great contact to him, I got him, I got Ricky Williams as a baseball agent, then he blows up in football. And now I'm really chasing him and I got him. So first time is we're going to come out his junior year. He decides last minute, you know, Rick's a strange cat. He decides I'm going to stay in. So a whole nother year recruiting him and people nipping at my heels. Then I do sign him. He wins the Heisman Trophy. I'm, i am like got the biggest client of my career. I'm taking off as a big time agent. And a month later, long story short, he fires me. He wanted to go with Master P. And Master P is a rapper who started a sports agency and he didn't want me. But he did want me to actually work for Master P. And now it's like, oh, my God, I'm not going to work for Master P and not. So anyway, I was in that moment and the Green Bay Packers called and they really sort of rescued me from a decision that I was going to have to make because I either go work for Master P, which is not what I really wanted to do, or go back to my firm without Ricky Williams and I'm probably kicked out. So the Packers said that Mike Holmgren, their coach, had just went to Seattle. He took Mike Reinfeld, the guy that ran the whole operation. He took him to Seattle. I said, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm like, why are they calling me? And they said, how would you like to switch sides? I said, me? Green Bay? They said, yeah. And I said, well, you got a hundred agents you're dealing with. Why me? And I had this third string quarterback at the time, Matt Hasselback, And they just said, we like the way you dealt with Hasselback. You seem to know your way around these contracts and cap, and we're trying to get more agent-friendly. What better way than hire an agent? And I said, okay. <laughs> um, and then I looked at them. I said, don't take offense, but do I have to actually move here to do this job? <laughs> and they said, no offense, but yeah, you got to be here. So now I have a wife and a kid, one kid, and it's like, okay, what do we do? And I really decided to sort of get off the agent train of chasing around players around the country. And I know everyone wants to do it at a young age. And I don't deter people from wanting to be agents. I just want to make sure they know what it is. But I got to a certain age with a family now. And I'm like, okay, here's my opportunity to get off, to get off the train of chasing players around the country, because the lifeblood of being an agent is recruiting. That's how you stay in business. And that's hard. That is a hard thing to do because you're so many agents after just this one pool of really good players. And that's hard to do, it's a hard life. So Green Bay was certainly not geographically desirable, but I did it. We'll get back to Austin and Janie with me. First a word from AG, AG1 is Athletic Greens. I love it, it's a great product. I use it every day, pour it in my water early in the morning, gives me all the supplements, nutrition I need. I don't need to spend on a lot of supplements. It costs less than $3 a day. It's much cheaper than getting all the different supplements you need. Lifestyle friendly, keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free. I started taking it years ago when I heard it on a podcast, and it's just been a habit for me with big benefits. It's the one thing I can do every morning to take care of myself. I don't need a multivitamin. I don't need all these supplements. I get everything I need with one scoop every morning, and it's packaged so easily you can take it on the road with you. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. You just have to visit athleticgreens.com BOS. Again, that's athleticgreens.com BOS for business of sports. Take ownership over your health. Pick the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. AG1, that's Athletic Greens. Back to my students, my friends, Janie and Austin, and I'll let you start another question.
2: Absolutely, so we just sort of started getting into your journey with the Packers. I was wondering if you could talk about sort of the transition from going, starting as a GM for the first time as your first position in front office management. How did that feel transitioning into a role where you had people above you, maybe with a little bit more guidance? Um, What was that transition like?
0: Yeah, very different than being an agent because, like, very team-oriented. Now you're with a team, right? So as an agent, you may be with a big firm, as I was, but, again, an agent is a very solitary existence when you're talking about your clients. It's very siloed. So your client, you want to maximize income for your client, maximize contract income and endorsement income and financial performance, whatever you can do. With team, it's like everything. And I don't want to be brogacious, Janie. I certainly didn't come in as GM. I came in as the director of player finance and general counsel and was promoted to just vice president. We made it simple. And that was really my role there. So I did, a lot of people wonder, what does that mean? So I basically did everything but coaching, scouting. So I did all our player contracts. Now I'm dealing with all the agents that I had competed with all these years and I knew them well and it was it was easier to negotiate with people that you knew as always. Then I did all our salary cap management, which we can talk about more. Then I did liaisoning with the NFL with whatever it is, whether we have grievances, players that we're grieving against, they're grieving against us, player disputes, player fines, player discipline. Uh, And then you're dealing with the NFL Management Council and any contract issues or labor issues that come up following our collective bargaining negotiations league-wide, dealing with local politics in certain ways. And we were getting a renovation done in my early years there at Lambeau Field. So basically, as I said, anything that involved players and not coaching, not scouting, I stayed in my lane away from those things. But that was my role there. And I like to say I was the fulcrum. So I think every organization needs this. I tell organizations this when I speak to corporate groups. I was kind of the middle between, in our case, the football side, which are coaches and manage- and GMs that really want to get players now, 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 now. And our business side, which is very long term. How are we look, going to look in 2028? How are we going to look when the CBA expires? Those kind of things. And I was kind of sometimes the voice of reason to the football side, like, hey, chill, we'll do this next year and sometimes the voice of aggression to the business side, like we need to spend another million dollars here. I need to make this happen. And as everyone knows, the Packers has no ownership structure of the traditional way. We had an executive committee, we had a board of directors, but they really gave us incredible autonomy. And I never took that for granted. I really didn't. But I will tell you this, if I did a contract with a player that was 10 million or 20 million, nobody would know nobody would say hey andrew good job or bad job it was just up to me and i understood the magnitude of that but i didn't get awed by it
1: one thing that you've talked about in classes and i think you know most people don't really understand in the industry but um you've talked about how we i think at the beginning of your career with the pack packers Um, Like you were able to get some really, I guess, team friendly deals against some agents who were maybe not as experienced or just didn't know what they were doing as well. But then over time, you realized that there was kind of a camaraderie and and it almost didn't make sense to, you know, pay players less than possibly, even though you could have gotten the deal. Can you kind of talk about maybe an example or two of that kind of growth within within your your time at the Packers and, and how that made you a better I guess vice president over the years
0: yeah and i think that's a great question austin because what i what uh, hopefully what i become here talking to you guys about it previously and now on this podcast is a little more human i think people that have success in life really have to show vulnerability on what they did wrong um and what austin's talking about is when i got to the packers something about me was very competitive like I want to show the world, and I don't know who the world even was. It's because I just talked about No one really noticed. Um, I could do these deals, right? I could negotiate these contracts with the best of them. I could outperform the Detroit Lions, the Denver Broncos, the Dallas Cowboys on these deals. And what I did, looking back, was destructive. What I did was I got over on certain agents, especially inexperienced agents with some of our better players, because I would go to young players, because I knew if they got to free agency, we'd have a hard time retaining them in Green Bay. So I'd go to younger players after year two or year three, and they're in their five-year contract stream, and I'd say, let's do a deal. And I would, you know, I would get a really good deal. And this is why it was wrong for a couple of reasons. Number one, they'd all come back. And they'd see the market pass them by a year later, two years later, three years later. And number one, they'd want more money in the middle of their contract. So we'd create these divisions and it wouldn't be good for the team. But the other thing is they looked at me. They looked at me like you got over on me. You got over on me. And that was hard. That was hard, especially when players wanted to negotiate with me because they said, you're cool, you've been an agent, I don't need an agent, we'll just do it together. And and that happened a couple times, and I lost relationships with players and agents. And I realized later in my career with the Packers, like, I better be less of a hard-ass here. Like, I got to chill out. So people think as you advance in your career, you become a harder negotiator. I became an easier negotiator. Because what I learned was you got to leave stuff on the table. You got to make people feel good about their contract. You got to make people feel good about working with you. And I learned that a couple of years into my career at the Packers. I was there nine and a half, 10 years, but I'd say the first two, three years, I was, I was not good. I'm getting over on people. I'm feeling like I'm winning all these deals. You don't want to win. I learned it the hard way because When I have players that are our star players looking at me cross-eyed, that's not good. Like, so it is a humbling experience to admit it, but that was, when I tell people about negotiating, don't be hard, you know, make people want to deal, do business with you. Every person listening can understand this. Every person listening knows you deal with the same people in your walk of life. You do all the time it may be five people it may be 50 it may be 100 but you're dealing with them over and over again and you want them to say oh Janie, austin andrew yeah i like dealing with him that'll be a fun fun relationship some partnership negotiation whatever it is
2: just sort of talking about the the balance that you have to strike but when you're negotiating um were there other elements of working in a front office that required different types of balance, like when it came to maybe work-life balance? Um, you know, it's sort of like working in sports, there's a lot of glamour um, and desire for people to get into the industry. But was there any point where, you know, maybe things you had to take a little bit of a break or um, there was a struggle with a personal life sort of balance with that?
0: Yeah, I mean, Green Bay was hard because of the weather. <laughs> it's, uh, um, I've talked about why I ended up leaving the Packers. And it's, just, it's kind of the same things that got me so excited in the early years being there. You're treated like royalty. It's a unique situation. You're thrown into this fishbowl. No one's from there in the building. And everyone knows you. And so you walk around and they're asking you and they're tapping you on the shoulder while you're pumping gas. And they're asking about this contractor, this player, are we really going to turn the team over to this guy, Aaron Rodgers? all these things that go on. And that was so cool at the beginning. And then as, as time went on, I'm like, I can't live this way. Um, I wanted more diversity for my life, for my wife, for my children. Um, I couldn't go out of the house and not talk about the Packers. It's just not the way I wanted to live. And I felt like uh, even a couple years before I left, I felt like I got to get out of here. There was a a moment, Janie, um, and it was my son's 10th birthday. We had it at Lambeau Field, right? Lambeau Field has party rooms. And two minutes into the party, I got a call. And it was free agency time as birthdays and is end of February. We're having it in early March. And I had to deal with a potential free agent. We were about to lose at that time to the Houston Texans. And it was a six hour slog. And I come back and they've closed, they've closed up the birthday party. And that was an inflection point where I'm like, I can't live like this because I want more with my sons. I want more time and uh, you'll never get it back. You know, I never, everyone talks about that. And everyone talks about leaving careers, more time with their family. But I think what they really mean is more time with their family when their family's young. Not when they're, you know, not with the wife and the kids are out of the house. You need more time when your kids are impressionable and around. I think that is part of the reason I ended up doing what I do now.
1: So now that kind of concludes almost like that chapter two. So what kind of made you want to go into the academic world? What was your motivations behind that? And how did you, you know, fall into, I guess, the the Philadelphia area after being in Green Bay for so long?
0: What I saw when I, I when I came to these realizations, I'm sharing here that I don't think this is for me, uh, long-term. I don't want to be a lifer with the Packers or a lifer with the NFL for that reason, for that matter. I'm like, what do I want to do? And there wasn't any epiphany. It just sort of came out in me, Austin, that, I, that just two things, two things. I'm like, I can do this and I think I'll be good at it because I always think I've been a good communicator, writer, etc., which are media, in academia. I'm like, I can do this. And I didn't even know at the time, but I thought maybe I could do things that people aren't even doing in those areas. So on the media side, everyone's talking about the games, who's good, who's bad, et cetera. But is anyone really breaking it down? Who's been there? Is anyone really talking about what goes on behind the scenes, behind the curtain in sports, the inner workings of sports? And then on the academic side, there's two types of people in academia. There are real professors that have spent because they've had to most of their life in academia. Then there are adjuncts who just come into a school for two hours a week and get it on their resume. And I'm like, I can be sort of a middle person on that and I can bring sports to life for students. So I hadn't, that was just kind of general. And then it was like, my wife's like, where? (laughs) I'm like, well, I had no compelling case, right? I'm like, California, Florida. Like, I had no compelling case. I'm like, there's no place that I have to be. And she's like, well, you know what? Let's go to Philly because she's born and bred in Villanova, Pennsylvania. And that made sense. Uh, We talked about D.C., But again, we had met in DC, we had lived in DC when I was obviously an agent. So we're gonna try Philly. And it sort of slipped out, I guess, to a few people that I was gonna move out to Philly. And the first call I got about anything was Ken Shropshire, the head of sports business at Wharton, University of Pennsylvania. And he's like, I'm hearing a a little birdies telling me you might be moving back here. And I'm like, yeah, he said, will you come teach with me? And I said, yeah, I'll teach with you, but that's not all I'm going to do. I'm going to do a lot of other stuff. She goes, fine. Yeah, please. So I moved back and started right away teaching at Wharton. I taught an undergrad sports law class and that actually led to a grad negotiations class, uh, MBAs Wharton MBAs are no joke. (laughs) You know, they they sort of put the pressure on you to come in there and give them something. So I did that. Um, and I'm like, okay, I can do this. And then I met with some guys that used to be in the NFL, a couple of agents. And we said, let's do all this media stuff we were thinking about. Like we're going to do, create a TV show, create this, create that. And then the website. And we're like, let's just do something we can concentrate on right away. And that was a website. It was called national football post. We started putting out columns in 2009, right when I left the Packers. And I was writing, geez, Austin, I was writing three, four columns a week. No one does that in media, no one. So I was just at it, you know, I'm like, I'm gonna try this. And then, you know, we talk, you asked them about flexion points and flexion point as an agent, inflection point as a team, but there was an inflection point in that side of my career where in 2011, all this was happening in sports. CBA lockout strikes, problems in nba nhl and most importantly for me obviously nfl and there was this perfect storm where fox espn and nfl network were were looking at each other in meetings and saying who can explain this shit you know who can talk about this legal business crap and they came to me and I did some freebies, you know, just guest spots. And then I had offers and then I hired an agent. I'm like, what do I do? And I I chose ESPN because it had the multiple platforms. And then I kind of had to prove myself at ESPN to get past all the lockout stuff that I could do more than that and then became a regular contributor. And I was there 2011 to 2018, seven years before they had a purge and kicked out a lot of people like myself. That was the media side. And then also on the media side, I was writing for ESPN after I wrote for my site. And then Peter King of Sports Illustrated called and said, we're putting a band together called the MMQB. It's going to be a weekly microsite in football. I'm like, I'm in, but I got this ESPN thing. So I had to go to ESPN and say, listen, I want to stay on the air for me, for TV and radio, but I'm going to write for, I didn't say it this way, your biggest competitor. <laughs> At the end of the day, they said, yeah, you can do that because that will give Peter King having an ESPN employee will give us a boost out there as well. So there was a time I was doing that, and then I've been still doing the uh, MMQB business football column now since 2013. And to round it out on the academic side, as you guys know so well, Jeffrey Morad, who grew up in baseball, like I grew up in football, he was an agent, team manager, but also owned a part of the... Same to a Padres Villanova alum, he endowed a program. I saw it in the news. A couple of months later, I get this call from him, and he tells me, just like Ken Shropshire said, a little birdie told me you're in Philadelphia? I'm like, yeah, I'm here. He says, would you run my program? And I said, nah, I don't know. You want me. Get an academic. that's going to be there all the time. And they went away and came back and said, we don't want an academic. We want someone that's going to be here all the time. I mean, to have this national name and national voice and would you do it and they said the words i want to hear which were and you know these were the magic words they said you're more valuable to us out there than sitting in an office and i'm like done <laughs> you know so that was 2013 as well and i've been there now wow 9 years so it's been a great experience where i i was like you guys at age 40 whatever where i'm like I'm going to try something new. I'm starting over. I started over in media and academic academia, both at the bottom, both at the lowest point. I mean, I know people come in at lesser stages than I do, but I was starting over and now it's been 12 years and it's working.
2: Just uh, bouncing off of that um, over the last 12 years, What's been the biggest change from, I guess, from an academic standpoint? Um, how have you seen law school change? How has the program at Villanova changed? Um, what are some of the biggest takeaways?
0: Well, I think sports law in general out there has always been a class. And you take a class at law school in sports law, or you take a class in business school on sports business and never a coordinated program. And I wouldn't say never, but there were a couple, only a couple opportunities out there for students prior to us forming this thing in Villanova. And that's exciting because now it's coordinated. It's sports law, it's sports business. It's the classes I teach. We have other professors. We have former athletic directors, now a deputy commissioner of the Big East, Vincent Castro teaching a class. It's a way I can sort of mold it in my image and, and help students because what i talked about earlier i'm not an academic i'm not going to be an academic i'm not even tenure track i'm just there as a director of a program that i can sort of use my name and use my whatever i've built up in the industry to lead the program um that probably didn't happen years ago years ago there would be as there are in some of those programs that have been out there a long time an academic Uh, Someone that came up in academia that's running the sports side. So that's changed. And then on the media side, as everyone knows, listening to this, there's no shortage of insiders now. I did a show on ESPN called NFL Live. We were all insiders every day. Um, But I still, you know, my challenge still, Janie, is to be unique. And that's everyone's challenge, to be unique. So I understand there are a lot of insiders out there but hopefully there's no one like me, right? There's no one that has been an agent, has been a, a team executive, has is a writer, is a professor, is an academic, can speak well, can talk well, can write well um, to provide that. So I tell all the young people to do what I'm still trying to do at my advanced age, which is be unique, be different, because I know there are a lot of Sports business insiders out there, but a lot of them are more reporter types and I'm never going to be a reporter type. I'm going to be a breakdown the news type. So that's what I'm trying to do.
1: From a media perspective, obviously you have the, the large Twitter following, you have the podcast, you're in a lot of different areas. You started out on TV when you first got into the space. Can you kind of talk about how you've seen media and i guess content getting out to your fans how that has changed since you've gotten into this space and you know where can i guess everyone get access to you now because now you have this email newsletter you have the sports business league so can you kind of talk about how i guess that's changed getting content to the viewers and now what do you have to offer
0: yeah i just think it's all changed i mean when i was at espn i remember going to one of our producers And this was early on, maybe 2012, 13, 14. You know, can we, can you guys think about a sports business show? Like we would talk about the business of the week and everything like that. And there was literally a producer that said, you know what, Andrew, 12 people are going to watch that show. (laughs) I'm like, okay. (laughs) So it backed me down pretty good. Um, I'm trying to prove them wrong. You know, I'm trying to prove those people wrong. I think, you don't have to think about, you know, nerdy existential stuff when you think about sports business. So it's out there. And my Twitter is kind of hopefully a shining example of that. I'm like everyone, you know, you write your first tweet, and you're like, who's going to care about this, right? And my link, my first article, like, who's going to read this? You're being so self-promoting. What are you doing? I'm not a natural self-promoter. But then you just sort of get into it. Where Twitter has resonated for me, and hopefully a lot of the people listening know, is that I try to do these bite-sized pieces of information, these nuggets that you don't find from other people. And I use Twitter for that. And it's resonated. And then you think of things like one thing I saw like just uh, probably like 2016, 17, and I said something, there will be lawyers. And oh my God, <laughs> it took off like I didn't mean it for to be a tagline. But there you see, you sort of learn from that. You see what happens when you do something like that. So that was something. And then, you know, I'm trying to expand. So when I started a podcast in 2017 or 18, again, people are like, podcast? Yeah, why are you doing that? Now everyone's got a podcast. And I just try to be different. I try to have a unique. I'm never going to get the numbers of a Pardon My Take, I'm never going to get the numbers of Bill Simmons. But I just try to get my people, you know, and try to build a bigger boat when I can and bring in unique things like this podcast. And then, as you said, what I tried to start, it's been a year now, is this newsletter. So on Sunday, I do the Sunday 7 credit to Austin right here for that name. That's a great name. Uh, I put out seven thoughts and it's just something I do every week. And it's a labor of love. And the email list has grown and grown and grown. You can sign up at andrew brandtcom where it's just sort of me putting out my thoughts. And it's a way to, people can see my podcast, my my column with Sports Illustrated every other week, and all the things I'm doing, whether I'll do a TV interview, I'll put it on there that week. Um, that's been fun, the newsletter, and I'll keep doing that. And then what you mentioned is what I'm really trying to do now is add Really, if you want to go deep with me, because yes, I'm going to make some money off it, but it's not about that anymore. It's about allowing people really to get into my brain seven days a week. So, Sports Business League is now going to be every day I do a daily video. What's the topic for the day? Whatever's going on, something new, something interesting, something I saw in the news. And again, not breaking the news, breaking down the news. And then I will, uh, you know, we'll have weekly meetings. We have a weekly Zoom for Sports Business League members. They get me for an hour, hour and a half, chatting about whatever's chopping up whatever's out there. And then we're gonna do quarterly seminars on sports business topics. We're gonna do some teaching and they're gonna get the newsletter early. So again, people who wanna get that, it's going to be reasonably priced, maybe hundred bucks a year or something like that. Sign up for the Sports Business League. Andrew Brand slash SBL, Andrew brandt slash SBL. So we're sort of doing more of that. As you know, I'm trying to get into Instagram more. Still learning that ecosystem. Now that I've been so prolific on Twitter, trying to expand my reach there. But it's a constant journey. And I, as I just said in the previous answer, you know, I'm at this advanced stage, but I'm learning all the time and trying to grow. I really am.
2: Going back to something that you mentioned about um, topics that you go more in depth on, something that I know we talked a lot about this past semester is NIL. And I kind of wanted to bring it back. And I'm just curious, what's your take on this sort of new age of NIL agents coming into the scene?
0: Yeah, I mean, we could spend the whole podcast, as, as I have many times, about NIL. But that's an interesting question about the agents, because... There's a, there are a lot of barriers to entry for being a pro sports agent, right? You have to get certified by the NFL PA or NBA PA or Major League Baseball PA or NHL PA, and you have to sort of go through the process. In the NFL, you got to take a test. Two days every summer in Washington, they give the test. But with NIL, there's no tests. There's no minimum barriers to entry. So anyone can theoretically be an NIL agent. What does that mean? Well, that means there's a lot of opportunities for young people, but a lot for athletes to sort of question because, Hey, you never really done it before. It's an entree to getting players. What we're seeing out there is a lot of established agents getting into NIL because they realize this is our entree without, you know, without sort of having anything for a kid. So they go to a kid as a freshman. In a normal situation, they would just be going to them like, hey, like us, you know, be our friend for two years, and then we'll get you all this money as a pro. Now it's like you can do stuff for them. You can prove yourself. And a big agency like Excel, like Vayner, like CAA, like Octagon can actually prove their worth when players are high school or freshmen and develop that relationship towards being a pro. So NIL has opened up all these opportunities for young agents or for uh unexperienced agents but also for big time agents and i i think that was kind of something i didn't expect
1: one thing you've talked about in your sunday sevens um really since the beginning has been you know i think uh, Janie talked about like that work-life balance and yeah. you know your your interest in things i guess Outside of sports, right? Where did that love of I know you you like being outdoors, triathlons, anything, you know, physical fitness related. Where did that kind of develop? Um, and and kind of in, you know, in Sunday sevens, like what kind of what's your angle on that? What do you talk about when it comes to those types of things as you know, you've kind of grown throughout like the sports space over the years?
0: Yeah, it's hard to know where that came from. I, obviously, I've always been interested in sports from, purchase, from a purchase program participatory point of view as well as a fan um it's just always been part of me like exercise trying to get sound body and mind i've just innate you know and i think you can't sort of coach that it's something that's always been important to me so yeah i mean the work life is so important to me it's really what i'm doing these past 12 years where you could describe my life as kind of um six or seven jobs, but a lot less oriented than a real one job. In other words, I do a lot of different things, but I always make time for what's important. And those non-negotiables are of course my fitness, my kids, my reading, my writing. So morning routine, a lot of people ask about routines and I try not to be too hard ass on this, but when I when I wake up and I do some stretching, I will not open the computer for a while. There's no hard, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's 30 minutes, maybe it's 40 minutes and then it's just reading and it's reflecting and then I'll open the computer and I'll write, I'll write. And sometimes I'm writing the Sunday seven. Sometimes I'm writing my business with sports column. Sometimes I'm writing a journal and then probably a half hour later, I'll start reading the web, the the internet, remember that? And, but it'll be, again, what I'm saying is, it'll probably be an hour and a half from wake up where I'll open something like a social media site. Because I've found that your best, most creative, most important time of the day is not getting any incoming, right? So I, I won't even open email for at least an hour. Cause you just don't want the incoming while you're reflecting. I think there are really two parts of a day. One is kind of reflective time and one is reactive time. And I always think reflective time, the longer you can keep it open. Now every day is different. I have early things someday, some not, but the longer you can keep your reflective time, the better you are. That's creative. That's writing, that's reading, that's thinking, that's putting yourself in the best position to be successful because. Again, with all my jobs, I have to be reactive. I try to save reactive for the afternoon, right? Reactive is gonna be email responding, doing my podcast, doing my, doing my school stuff in the afternoon, doing my radio interviews. Now, sometimes people say, I gotta have you at eight in the morning or nine in the morning. I'm like, that's fine, but that's sort of my, my routine. So I, morning is sort of a non-negotiable for reading, writing, and exercise. So I guess if you had to say my routine, I'm up around 6, six 15. I'll start reading around 7. I'll start writing around 7.30. I'll start looking at social media or emails around 8.30. I'll look at social media. And then I'll exercise in the sort of 10, 9.30 to 11 range and then sort of get the reactive part of my day started around noon. So this just... My routine, I realize I'm fortunate without a quote-unquote full-time job, uh, but I can do what I can do and make my life work that way.
1: Before Janie takes that last question, I just wanted to say, from a routine perspective, you can bet on in the fall and the spring on Tuesdays between 3.30 and 5.30, you said you leave time for the afternoon. There will always be sports breaking news during your classes. <laughs> As someone who's been through three of them, there will on a routine there will whether it's the bucks protesting a game the brian flores lawsuit they always tend to drop on tuesdays at like 4 15 and i and we i have to text you in the middle of class so just speaking about routine that's a routine that i always think of what
0: i think of. it's today. amazing that my class the breaking news happens like austin was there it was you were a student that yeah. time we're like hey uh the Bucks. this was in the bubble uh the bucks aren't playing tonight i'm like what like, yeah, they're boycotting the game because of the Jacob Blake shooting in Wisconsin. Like, oh, and all these other games aren't happening tonight. Oh, and they're all going to meet tonight. And Barack Obama is going to speak. I'm like, what? Wait, what? <laughs> so, and then, of course, this year, Austin's my TA. And uh, we're in the middle of class talking about NIL. And it's like, uh, Brian Flores is suing and Bill Belichick's called him. A, so, like, what? wait, what? And and the owner of the Dolphins paid him to lose games and like, wait, what? So, yeah, I mean, I'd say out of a 13 week semester, probably five days you can count on where the whole it's yeah. going to happen.
2: Well, I'm looking forward to that in the fall. <laughs> um, I guess sort of approaching that hour mark. I don't know if you want to close out with one more question. Yeah, sure. Okay. I just was curious what some of your future goals are, either short-term, more long-term, what's on the horizon for you?
0: Yeah. I mean, this sounds so trite, but just try to be a better guy uh, every day, every week, every month. But I also just want to never lose my, my drive towards being different, being the best I can be with media and academia, and as I grow this Sports Business League, as I grow the newsletter, I think I can create something that's a real template out there. You know, people talk about legacy. I don't know about that. I mean, there's a story I want to share before we go. When I was driving around Green Bay once, and my little boys were in the back in their car seats, and I'm just a wreck. You know, something happened with whatever, Brett Favre or Aaron Rodgers, and I, I'm like all tied in knots and my wife is like what are you doing i'm like yeah i'm worried about my legacy and the cap and these contracts and she just says hey your legacy is in the back seat that's not your legacy who cares about that and i'm like okay <laughs> yeah my legacy was those two little boys in the in the car seats so uh continue to make them proud spend as much time as i can with them they're now in dallas and la and i travel a lot out to those two places um I just think grow you know i I never want to be someone that's kind of standing still and i know people say well you know chill out a little bit i have chilled out you know i talked about exercise i used to get up at five in the morning and i'd have them laced up and out the door at 5 30. I, I have chilled out now i read relax and all those things before i do my fitness but um never get complacent and you have to, I've, I've told you guys this in class and I've told this in speeches. I think that the two drive, best drivers for success that I've seen in people are self-motivation and self-discipline. And sometimes I go a little too far with the self-discipline, not drinking, not smoking. Not, I mean, I get a little weird on that, not eating anything fried, all that stuff. But I just think you have to have an intrinsic in you it's not about the money. You know, I made so much more money with the Packers, but I'm so much happier now. And people say, "Oh my god, why would you be happier not working for the Packers?" I'm like, "Lifestyle. I want a better life. I want a life that I can control." And I think I'll leave it with this. I think people ask me, "What's the definition of happiness?" Happiness is not wanting. You know, happiness is not wanting things that you don't have. Uh I work as much as I want to work. I do as much as I want to do. Some days are frenetic, some are not. I see my boys when I want to see them. I uh, see friends. I go out in the middle of the day and do things. But I get my stuff done, and I make sure people are good, make sure people who are depending on me are good. But that's one definition of success. Another definition of success is really more mindful. It's more the present. People are successful. People are happy are about the present. They're not thinking about something that happened in the past. They're not focused on something in the future. They're just good. Like they're good. Like right now, they're good. And when people talk about happiness, it's never going to be People should know that when I get X, when I get X job, X promotion, X car, X girlfriend, X boyfriend, I'll be happy. No, no, that never happens. So I just think when people look at themselves, they have to say, okay, where can I be in a position where I'm not wanting? I'm not desiring something I don't have. And can I be happy in the present? Can I not be thinking about Something to happen in the past, something's going to happen in the future. Can I be happy in the present? It's, it sounds some Zen, there's some you know mindfulness in it, but I just think that's what I've learned over the years. People that have always impressed me, they're just chill. They're, they're in the moment, they're okay. they're not worried about the past, they're not frenetic about the future. they're good. Yeah, I
1: think that, I think that's everything we have. I mean, it was a pleasure, I guess, being uh, on the podcast for the first time after listening for all these years. Um, yeah. I just, I had a ball
0: doing it. Thanks for having Janie and I.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much.
0: You guys are great. And you know, people should know that uh, someone like Austin makes my life so much easier. I'm, you know, whatever I can do to help you, I'm in. Right. And Janie's just coming into that. Uh what Austin's done for the past two years. So, um, I had Austin and a few guys over the house last week. It's just, you know, you have to give back. And I kind of look at what I'm doing in this third chapter of my career is giving back. It's not like I'm doing this, you know, I can't cure cancer. I can't solve world problems, but I can give back my knowledge and perspective to students, to listeners, to viewers. And I hope that's working. Thanks to you guys. And, uh, I'll just close it right now, that'll do it for this week's edition of the Business of Sports. You can follow me on Twitter at Andrew Brandt, Instagram, Andrew Brandt 2, the Sunday 7 we talked about, andrew-brandt.com. Go to the Sports Business League, andrew-brandt.com slash SBL. Thanks to my producer, Brian Neal. Thanks to my musical producer, Sam Brandt. And thanks so much to Janie Pearson. And Austin Mayo, these are two stars. The world's going to be looking to hire them soon. They should be. I'm behind them. We'll be back next week with another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Grant.